in there. Let's just pray together. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you it's good news for all. Thank you that uh, we have many ways in which we can share that good news. Uh, and Lord, we pray that we might have courage uh, and boldness in sharing that. And for that, Lord, we need your help. And so, Lord, we pray that you'll speak to us from your word tonight. You'll encourage us through it. And you'll show us how we might serve you in the places you have put us and perhaps in the places we aren't yet in because you're going to lead us there. So help us, we pray. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, I mentioned university. And when I was at university, I did civil engineering, a very good career. Something else in common there. And if you are involved in construction work, what I learned there uh, was that you've got to do it well if it's going to last. Uh, and I had an experience of that when I was at school, because when I was at school, uh, we had some new accommodation. And rather than the old, run-down Victorian structure, no, I, I wasn't there when it was Victorian, but that was just the age of it. Uh, now we had these modern, sparkling buildings. How beautiful they were. It looked so good. They were warm. They were comfortable. They were impressive. But when it rained, the carpets went squelch. They were soaked. Reason? The windows, for some reason, had been put in the wrong way. And the water flooded through the sides of the windows into the rooms. You see, to build well, it takes time. It takes effort. It takes careful planning. And it's often costly. If you rush... If you cut corners, then disaster is sure to follow. Nehemiah is a builder. You see that very clearly as you read through the book of Nehemiah. And he leads the project to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And as you read on from the first chapter, you're going to see how he builds, the time he takes, the effort that is needed, the careful planning that is all so costly. So what does that have to say to us so many years later when probably most of us aren't builders? Well, as he builds the walls of Jerusalem, he actually shows us something about what it means to serve God. And the passage we have this evening helps us as Christians to think about the mission that God has called us to. So please turn to Nehemiah chapter 1. And first... Three really important things I want to see this evening. But first, Nehemiah cares about God's honor. Nehemiah cares about God's honor. This is all about vision and motivation. Nehemiah isn't an entrepreneur with a plan to rebuild a city in some uh, grand way to make a name for himself. He isn't a building contractor. Oh no, he is a man with a heart for God's. He is living in a day that is dark and is difficult. Uh, God's people have rebelled against God. They turn from the living God and have worshipped idols. And because of that, they were judged by God, as God's word promised would happen. Verse 8 tells us that. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And so how did God do that? He scattered them. Babylon invaded, came and took Jerusalem, and the people were taken into captivity, into exile. But while they are there, they cry out to God. 
They call upon God, who was merciful, and so some returned under the new superpower, which was Persia. So verse 9 tells us, But if you return to me and obey my commands, I will gather them. Do you hear the heart of God here, the love of God? Gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Then the place for the dwelling for his name was supremely Jerusalem, and that land described as Israel. And if you read the book of Ezra, you'll see that the man Ezra uh, seeks to establish the people in Judah and to build the temple in Jerusalem. It's a struggle, uh, not least because the city doesn't have a wall, uh, and the walls are in ruins, which led you into a, a very great danger of being attacked. That brings us to Nehemiah. The account begins with Hanani from Judah on a visit to his brother, Nehemiah, who lives in Susa in Persia. And look at verse 2. Look at the question that uh, uh, Nehemiah asks. I questioned them about the Jewish remnants that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. How are things back home? How are things back home? Uh, that question shows us immediately what matters to Nehemiah above all else. You see, Nehemiah is, is a man of success. He is cupbearer to the king, uh, verse 11. That was uh, something of great privilege, as close to royalty as you could be. Perhaps butler to King Charles might be a, a way of describing it. There were many privileges. He is a man who is hugely successful, a man who has status, not just in the palace, but in the empire, because he has it in the palace, he has it in the empire. And yet this question, here in verse 2, how are things at home, shows us that his heart is elsewhere. His heart is not in the palace, his heart is not in the empire, his heart is not in his success, but he has a heart for God and God's people. God is his priority, not success or materialism or comfort. And you know, there's our first challenge this evening. What about you and me? You see, this includes all of us. It doesn't matter who we are. Because the world and society that we live in has got much to say about materialism, about success, about self, and all of those things are being very, very important. They tempt us, and they seduce us, and they pull us. They are, they are like magnets to us with our metal hearts, and we're drawn towards them. But we need a heart from God that says we are drawn to Him and His glory and His way. There's our first question, our first challenge. Are we able to say, how are things at home? And our home is where God is. And his people are. And Nehemiah wants to know what is happening in what is essentially in that empire a tiny, irrelevant backwater. This is now many years since the exile. Nehemiah has never been to Judah. And so what Nehemiah hears shocks him. Those who survived the exile, is verse 3, and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. Disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. This city, this city where 
God's glory is to be seen is in disrepair and the people are in great trouble and disgrace. The people who are to exhibit God's glory are in disgrace. There had been a good start. You can read about that uh, about a hundred years earlier, but it spotted to a halt. Some walls were constructed, but in essence it's a folly. And the other peoples and the other nations mocked. Uh, and when they mock God's people, they mock God himself. That's a key Old Testament principle. If you ever see a prophet being mocked, or, or you read of God's people being put in that place of being mocked by the nations, then that is actually mocking God himself, and is a very serious matter. And that is why Nehemiah is shocked. God is being mocked. Uh, so when I heard these things, verse 4, I sat down and wept. Tears came to his eyes. He is a man who is moved for the glory of God. That is an overriding motivation. And what concerned Nehemiah was what it said about God to the other nations. So we see immediately that this isn't about bricks and mortar. This is about God's glory. This is a theme that we have here. And how is God supremely glorified? It's in the saving of men and women. It's in the saving of those students at, uh, at the universities that you go to. It's the saving of uh, boys and girls who might be born into your family or come along here for Sunday school, if you call it that, or children's clubs. You see, why did Christ die on the cross to save? And in that saving, people are glorified. So it is in mission of every kind that God is glorified. And Nehemiah's motivation is evident here and his, <coughs> his vision, the city. God's city is in a mess. And he wants to see its glory restored so that God's glory is seen. In the Old Testament context, we've got to be really careful, and particularly so today. Uh, Jerusalem, in the Old Testament context, is the city of God. In the Old Testament, it is a beacon to the nations, as is God's people, the nation who dwell in that part of the world that is called Israel. In the New Testament context, we actually see something bigger. God wasn't just working in a small, but in the Old Testament that points us to something bigger that we find in Christ that actually comes as the church. Uh, so ultimately we read in uh, the New Testament in Revelation about the city of God, this holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, the church and Christ. There's the picture. Look, God's dwelling place is now among people and he will dwell with them. God's glory we see in that New Testament context as the old points us to the new of mission in all places, of God being glorified as he saves in Anglia Ruskin CU and university as we pray for and will be praying for, perhaps in other CUs, perhaps in this church and overseas as we've been uh, thinking of uh, the work in Eastern Europe of Slagno and Allison, of Central Asia, of Paul and Solvay, uh, of Reuben and Kathy, much less familiar to you, but there in the Philippines. 
church planting, seeking to build God's church, the local church, as people are saved. The challenge to us is whether we have that same concern for God's honor and glory. Stan Evers uh, writes in a commentary on this, we too, like Nehemiah, are called to build. But we're not erecting a physical city, but the church, the city of God. Is our vision God's glory in the work of mission? Are you committed to such a work? If you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, obviously you can't be yet. If you are committed to this work, then what should you do? That's our second point. For Nehemiah cares about God's honor, that's vision and motivation. Secondly, Nehemiah acts for God's honor. Nehemiah acts for God's honor, which in essence is prayer, looking at verses 5 to 11. Nehemiah's care and concern is evident for he is emotionally moved. I wept. Nehemiah was moved as the need came to his mind and moved his heart, and then that led to a second action. He acts to uphold God's honor. What does he do first? There were so many uh, things he could do. Set up a buildings committee. Great idea. He could bring a representation to the king. Great idea. He could send a command using his status to the people and saying, pull yourselves together and get on with building it. Great idea. But he does none of those things. He prays. He prays. It seems so weak, and yet it is so right, and that's why we should be praying for that CU and that, uh, uh, that work of mission. Uh, Ronald Dunn, the speaker, uh, tells of going to a conference and speaking on prayer. After one session, a delegate came up to him and said, I'm worried that this prayer thing could get out of hand. What do you mean? Well, people could get so caught up in praying they wouldn't do anything. Ronald Dunn writes then, Riley, uh, when I realized the man was serious, I assured him I'd yet to come across a church or person that was praying so much that they had to be told to stop. We would just have to cross that bridge when we come to it. So far, I haven't seen anything resembling that bridge. If we want to uphold God's honor, here is our starting point. Prayer. Personal prayer. I see you praying. Church praying. And God's honor is the theme that is sort of intertwined within his prayer here. We could spend a long time looking at this, but I just want to see four things very simply here in verses 5 to 11. Because as he prays, it sweeps away any of those objections you might have or doubts about prayer. Because sometimes we say to ourselves, is there really any point praying? Yes, says Nehemiah, because we're praying, verse 5, to the great and awesome gods. To the great and awesome gods. There is no one greater, no one mightier. That's why it is worth praying. Sometimes we think, I'm not sure if God will hear. I, I know he's very great. I know he's very awesome. Well, he will hear you pray. Because verse 5 tells us that this God is the one who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him. He keeps his covenant of love. What is that covenant of love? Well, here is the good news that we have, which is even greater than what Nehemiah had. We're able to see the new covenant in the cross of Christ. 
because Jesus died for your sins and my sins, we know that there is his promises wonderfully fulfilled. He will hear because he knows you and loves you. Oh, but I've messed up. I'm too sinful. Verses 6 and 7 help us with that. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. Here is the depth of sin, the mighty sins of idolatry. And he confesses them and prays. And what happens? He knows forgiveness. And the Christian knows that even greater because we have that new covenant in Christ. All our sins are taken in the death of Jesus. Is God concerned? He's not really concerned. Well, yes, he is, because he promises in verses 8 and 9, he's reminded of that, of that great verse, that I will gather them. If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you. But verse 9, if you return, I will gather them. And verse 10, we are your redeemed people. Redeemed. You have redeemed us. You have set us free from our sin. You have paid the price for our sin. We are your people. And so we pray. And we know the privilege of prayer. And the picture that we receive in the New Testament is very much of that, of the the child who goes to the loving parent. Except God's love is even greater than even the best parent. That love shed in the blood of Christ for us means we can have that confidence in prayer. And here is Nehemiah pleading with the Lord. It is persuasive biblical prayer. And what's more, as he prays, he is ready to be the answer of that prayer. Verse 11, as he prays all about that, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant. Right, that last verse, last line give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man the concern for God's glory leads to personal action and the first action isn't to rush into uh, some construction task but it is to bring it before the Lord oh Lord may you act I was listening to a podcast the other week and uh, uh, one thing struck me forcibly. I thought, I'll write that down. Uh, the person on this podca- podcast was talking about uh, uh, Paul when he writes, to, writes, writes 1 Timothy. He writes 2 Timothy and he's writing 1 Timothy. Uh, to counter false teaching in Ephesus. And when he gets round to telling Timothy what to do, the first thing he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is to pray. I'd never seen that before. You've got to sort things out in Ephesus because of problems. First thing, Pray. You see, there are so many encouraging and liberating things in what we're seeing here relating to mission. Mission. I can't do anything. Oh, yes, you can. You can pray. Let's use the application of Anglia Ruskin because it's so perfect. I'm not a student. I can't go there. I can't do anything. I can pray. Tomorrow morning when I get out my UCCF prayer guide, I go, oh, where was I yesterday? Oh, I was at uh, Eden. I can pray for those two girls, for Beth and Lucy and the team. 
stops us saying, I can't do much. There's nothing better than to pray. Not just think in a CU context, but think of the church. Think of the, the mission partners. It stops us saying, I'm not relevant. Oh, that's, uh, you know, my day of being involved in mission is over. It's never over. You can pray. Let's get one of your mission partners' prayer letters sent to you. Or get something on, uh, on WhatsApp. Or email, or whatever you like to use. doesn't matter. Pray and pray. You see, prayer is the first response, and you are crucial in this. And Nehemiah's example is so clear in the work of mission here. He is positive in prayer. And his goal and his aim is to uh, revere God's name. Isn't that what's right? Look at verse 11. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. The glory of God. God's honor as he prays. And then thirdly, finally, Nehemiah steps out to uphold God's honor. There is going to be cost. Look what he does. Well, first thing he does is he gets on with his work as cupbearer. It's a bit of a surprise. I was cupbearer to the king. But he's clearly waiting and expectant for his prayer to be answered. But he waits. And the passion and concern he has for God's glory is evident on his face. He feels this. And so the king asks him, what is wrong? Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And then we read one of the most encouraging verses in the whole of the Bible. Have you seen it? It's there, right at the end of verse 2. I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. Now, why is he afraid? Two reasons. First, the king before him is a totalitarian despot. Uh, that there is a certain amount of fear that he should have for offending the king. But he was also very fearful of what he knew he had to say. It was disloyal. It could even be described as treason. You see, if you're a Christian tonight, you know something of this. Yes, you do. Mission is challenging and fills us with fear whether that is in our family, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's our neighborhoods, our university, our church. I've been hugely helped by uh, the evangelist Rico Tice and his writings, and his book, Honest Evangelism, is great because it is honest. I recommend this to you and whoever you are. Does anyone read? No, I won't do that. don't have any responses back here. It is a great book. Okay. And he says, most people don't like the gospel. Sometimes they express that politely. I've certainly known that. That's very nice for you, Daryl. Uh, but often they say it rather more forcibly. And we need to think how incendiary what we believe is. We say that Jesus is the only way, that there is no other way in the whole world to be put right with God other than through the cross of Christ. And that is the only way to have your sin forgiven. That is incendiary. And then we say, one day, every single person in this world is going to be judged by God. Uh, and those who have trusted in Christ will go to heaven. And those who don't will go to hell. 
So he says, if you're going to talk to people about Jesus, which is our mission, you're going to get hurt. We know fear. I know there is a pain, a pain line to be crossed if I tell someone the gospel. And I want to stay the pain-free side of that line. So it is tough. We do. We don't want to get hurt. I prefer people to say that's nice for you, Daryl, rather than to have a raging argument and to fall out. Well, that sounds rather depressing, but let's see what Nehemiah does next. There are three things. Uh, Nehemiah, first of all, is totally honest. Verse 3, may the king live forever. Good thing to say to the king. Uh, Should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed? He doesn't duck the issue. He is also completely God-dependent. Verse 4, another wonderfully encouraging verse. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. It's an arrow prayer, but he's already done a lot of praying before. Don't just depend on arrow prayers. And then he is fully courageous. In the midst of fear, he speaks and boldly asks, send me to that city. Can I go to Jerusalem? And please, can you give me the the, the materials I need, the resources to do this? Talk about boldness. And here is a wonderful pattern and encouragement in mission. He knows what his mission is, and he is honest. He's honest about it. I want God to be glorified in the building of those walls. He is dependent upon God. He he prays and prays. And then he is courageous as he speaks and asks this pagan powerful king. Are we like that? When do we need to be like that? Leave you to think about that. But what about missionaries? I haven't talked much about missionaries, have I? Before we finish, let's apply this to missionaries for where we might duck the issue, and we do sometimes, don't we? The missionaries are called as a matter of their livelihood and calling to do this, and they have the same fear as you have. Don't look at those there or on the board over there and think they are superhuman. No, they are human. Not superhuman, they are human and they feel that fear as you do. It's the same. So we need to pray for them. We need to pray for them because they are called to this daily. They need courage to be like Nehemiah. They need us to pray for them. That is what we are here for. We're all part of that work of mission. That is why we're praying for those at Anglia Ruskin. That's why we're praying for those who are in Central Asia and those who are in Eastern Europe. And you might be praying for those in the Philippines. You might be gripped about thinking, how can I go and do some envision work? And I'd be interested in that talk to Andrew afterwards to use my time. I don't know. Pray. Will you? And will you cross that pain threshold? Will you ask the Lord to help you to speak? to do what Nehemiah does. I was very much afraid. I prayed, and then he spoke. Spiritual warfare we're involved in. The rest of Nehemiah, if I had time, and I haven't, and I'm not going to, there's so much we could draw out on spiritual warfare in mission. But as we finish, we see that Nehemiah cares about God's honor. He has a vision, a motivation for God to be honored. Do we? 
Nehemiah acts to uphold God's honor. He prays for God's honor. Do we? And Nehemiah steps out to uphold God's honor. He speaks, he acts. He counts the cost. Do we? In mission, Jesus is searingly honest about this. He sends his disciples out, and he says in Matthew 10, verse 16, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Have you ever thought about that particular picture? How well do wolves and sheep get on? Do sheep thrive when they are amongst wolves? No. So if you're going to be involved in mission, there's a danger you might get eaten. That's not what Jesus means. You see, the miracle and the glory of the gospel is that wolves get turned into sheep. Let's pray together. Lord, in the work of mission, we pray that you'll help each one of us. You'll help us wherever we are, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in the church activities, in the Christian unions, and for the mission partners across the world that, Lord, we will follow that example of Nehemiah, that we will be ready to count the cost because we are dependent upon you and ready to speak. Help us in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.